Riverside Trinity Church, it is so great to see you today. Uh, we are missing you on lawn, but as I got here this morning and saw it at 40 degrees, I think it's the right decision. We were thinking about what incredible difference a week makes. Last Sunday, we were out on the lawn uh, morning and evening and just had a beautiful spring-like day, and now we are a week later, and it feels like January. This is kind of what January is supposed to be. So thank you for being flexible. We, those of you who join us online every week, this is no different. Maybe today the fireplace is, is turned up and uh, your jammies are a little warmer than normal. But we pray it's a great morning today. We're so glad to meet with you. Grateful for our production team to be able to pivot so quickly, to be able to move things indoors and still bring a service to you today. So grateful for the worship team and the wonderful the job they did, and especially that new song. I love it because it has all these wonderful themes that really are made alive in the book of John, and they're just repeated all throughout that song. So a beautiful way to get our minds set on where we're going. You join us today. We're about a month long into a brand new teaching series called Beckon, and we're in the book of the God. Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, fourth book in the New Testament. If you want to make your way there to chapter two of John, if you have our app or you're on our website, those are also uh, pretty handy places to pull up our notes for today, and you can track with us throughout the message. Those of you in home groups, most of you are using the message notes for your discussions throughout the week, so hopefully that'll help you uh, process with that as well. So it is great to be here today. I've got a couple different yay God things for you as we kind of get ready to kick it off. The first is we had talked, I mentioned in my midweek video this last Wednesday that we are back uh, in our food box distribution. We've gotten the ability, the partnership to work with some other local entities. And beginning this Thursday, the 28th, we'll begin distribution again in different places as well as from our own uh, church kitchen. We need volunteers for that. And so if you would be willing on Thursday morning this week, and even if you can make a commitment even longer than one week, but we would take this Thursday, uh, you can email missions at trinityonline.org. That's my good friend Mary Weiler. She'd love to hear from you, and she'll let you know the different types of needs, whether it be literally in the kitchen or helping deliver some boxes around the community. But we're excited to be working and have that opportunity. Again, it's been a few months of pause, and now we're back at it, and we love getting to be a blessing to people in Redlands and the surrounding area. The other thing I wanted to let you know about is something coming up uh, very soon. Last year was the very first time that we had services on Sunday afternoon or evening, and what we realized was that Super Bowl weekend can become challenging with just trying to find what, what people are going to do, so we'd come across this idea of having what we call a Super Saturday service. So on that Super Bowl weekend, we're not um, discounting or uh, canceling our evening service, we're just moving it to the day before. And I remember being inside this building and seeing this place packed on a Saturday night for just a different day of the week to worship and a neat opportunity to come together. So on this weekend, coming up February the 6th, we'll have a Super Saturday service on lawn only at 4 p.m. And then the next morning on the 7th, we'll be on lawn and online at 9 a.m. So just want to make you aware of that so you can be planning and that'll be coming up in the near future. 
Well, in this series, we are really excited about the things that we're beginning to learn as we look at the life and ministry of this Jesus that we've been singing about so much today. And in it, what we're going to see today is some really powerful expression of Jesus's deity. This series title, Beckon, it, it's the idea of the God who invites us close. And what we're seeing at the beginning of the book of John are all these different interactions that Jesus has with people, and each time it's an opportunity for people to come near. He invites them to come close and to understand, to know more of who he is and the Father that sent him. Today what we're going to see powerfully is Jesus's deity on display as he does the supernatural. He's invited to a wedding. There's a shortage of wine, and he transforms water into wine at this wedding. And so not only his generosity, but his true supernatural power. Now, I want you to hear this. I just said that Jesus is going to do something outside the laws of nature and the things that really bind us together that we are bound by as human beings. And if you're at all familiar with the Bible, you have heard of other people even being empowered to do miraculous things throughout the Old and New Testament and Jesus beyond any of them, but yet it can become somewhat normative. Oh yeah, once again, Jesus is going to bend the laws of nature. And I just want to caution you from taking that approach and instead see this narrative today through new eyes. See it through a freshness that doesn't already know what's going to happen next and experience the power and the generosity of God just like those at the wedding celebration would have. And so I'm excited to look at this, and our goal is going to be today that we would have this, it would have the same net effect, it would have the same result in our lives as it did in Jesus' disciples, because it says at the end of our passage today, and when they witnessed Jesus' power, they believed in him. Here's our now what statement today, and what our goal is that we would take away from this passage Deepen your confidence in God when he demonstrates his power and goodness around you. Let God's power and goodness demonstrated around you deepen your confidence, your faith, your belief in who he is. Number one in our notes today, because Jesus is not bound by time, he can be precise in his timing. Because Jesus is not bound by time, he can be precise in his timing. We're in John chapter 2 today, beginning in verse 1. Let me read it. Read along. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. I can't wait to unpack this father or this mother-son relationship. There's so much going on. But before I do, let's look a little bit. Uh, I've been using a commentary a lot throughout this series by D.A. Carson, and he just does such a great job. I want to give you a preview of actually chapters 2, 3, and 4, and I want you to see the big idea that's coming out. Look at this quote, and this is important for us as it frames this message today and for the next few weeks. It says, these three chapters are organized to convey what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17. The old has gone, the new is come. 
The three chapters, these three, the three chapters present the replacement of the old purifications by the wine of the kingdom of God and the old temple by the new in the risen Lord. An exposition of new birth for new creation, a contrast between the water of Jacob's well and the living water from Christ, and the worship of Jerusalem and Gerizim with worship in spirit and in truth. And I just think that quote does such a great job of framing where we're going to be going in the next few weeks. And I wanted to give you that big picture. And I I really love this passage because it really does demonstrate what uh, we just saw in this uh, Carson quote, that the old has gone, the new has come. Jesus's miracle does far more than provide wine at a wedding celebration. It's a a powerful demonstration that there is a new way for us to be right with God. And we'll see what that looks like today when we unpack it a little bit. So um, here's the setting of what we're looking at. We saw a few weeks ago that John is incredibly precise in the first parts of his uh, gospel where he's giving us a lot of time. He's giving us a lot of detail. And so we see again on the third day. So he's giving us a, a timing of when this narrative happens. And we noticed that this wedding took place in a town called Cana. Now, for a map, if you wanted to kind of see what is that in relation to everything, we know that Jesus was from Nazareth. Whether he was attending the wedding, coming from Nazareth or not, isn't really specific in the text, but at least you can know that Cana is only about a day's journey from Nazareth. It's very close. And in this section, in this part of the Middle East that we would call then Galilee, it was this region, and Cana was not far away from Nazareth at all. Um, In John's gospel, this is the first time that Mary appears, and that's kind of interesting. We're in the second chapter, and remember we said that John presents Jesus' entry into the world very different than the other three gospels, and we know that Mary has had a significant role in his life up until this time, especially at his birth, I would uh, suggest. But at this point, this is the first time we see her in the narrative. We see that she is a guest at this wedding, and we also note that Jesus as well has been invited, and he brings what is really, it seems like, the beginning of this group of disciples. The five that were kind of identified as we looked at the end of chapter one last week, uh, Andrew, most likely John, the author of this gospel, Simon Peter, Andrew's brother, Philip, and Nathaniel. That group of five, it appears to be, would be those that are joining him at this wedding feast. Now, another piece, we find out at the very end of the Gospel of John that Nathanael was from Cana, and that's in chapter 21, verse 2. So there's a good chance that Nathanael had some reason to be at this wedding as well. It might have been another part of why they were invited to be at this ceremony or at this celebration. But then we read about an issue where the wine runs out. There becomes a need. Now, I want us to understand this. We really have to understand a little bit of the historical context of what a wedding was like in the first century in Galilee. That's really important. And what's really, really different from most of our weddings, I don't know if you've ever been to this kind of a wedding, but the wedding celebrations would last usually up to a week. 
And so in that, people would come in and out. There wasn't a, a codified guest list. There wasn't this sense of, we know who's going to be here from two to four at our uh, wedding celebration. It was kind of an open house throughout the entire week. And so it made catering very, very difficult to know how much food or how much drink you would need to have on hand, and that people would just kind of keep making their way through. So what day of the celebration, Mary, Jesus, and the disciples show up. We're not totally sure, but within it, as they arrive, it's at that day that the wine runs out. Now, this would have been an incredibly embarrassing thing and even shameful, not so much even just for the wedding couple, but specifically for the groom. In this part of the world in the first century, and actually in, it, it even uh, is, continues to be that way today, it would be the groom and his family that would actually provide for the wedding celebration. And, and this is a powerful point, that the, the whole point of the wedding banquet was for the groom to, dis, to demonstrate his ability to provide as a husband by providing sufficient food and drink for his guests. So this would have been actually really a a very shameful or even embarrassing type of event for the groom having run out of wine. So this is, is, is a, when we kind of think about it, trying to put it in our own cultural understanding, we could see that being, oh, that's a bummer, or even kind of people snickering like, I wish you, they would have known who was coming. But this was a much more challenging situation, and it was going to yield a real uh, devastating type of effect. It's important to note two things about this dilemma. It's important to note, how did Mary know? Meaning, there, it wasn't like, it does, we don't get the impression that someone stood up at the wedding and said, by the way, uh, we've, all, we've run out of wine. Actually, to the contrary, we'll find out later on that it seems as though the master's ceremonies, the host didn't even know they had run out. So Mary somehow has some sort of entrance. Is it a relative of Mary, a close friend of Mary that finds out? We're not totally sure, but Mary has an awareness that the wine has run out, most likely before anyone else. And Mary asked Jesus to do something about it. Now, you might note in the text that we read, she really didn't ask him. She made a statement. If you go back, she said that, you know, they've run out of wine. And, um, and she's communicating that this couple has a need. And I love this narrative for a host of reasons because one thing it really demonstrates is the genuine and authentic relationships that Jesus had with people. In this case, specifically his mother. Because I'll tell you this, any son of a mother understands that when his mother makes a statement that might not be in the form of a question asking him to do something, but makes a statement that there is a need, that is a veiled way of saying, I want you to do something about it. So I think, there, and the interchange totally demonstrates such a thing. She was not simply making Jesus aware, oh, by the way, isn't it an interesting thing that this couple has run out of wine at their wedding? She, he understands her inference for sure that this is something she wants him to do something about. Now, when you think of this, it's, we don't get any impression from the Gospels that Jesus is wealthy, just to the contrary, that he is in no way at all. And so, is Mary asking him just to go down to the local wine store and bring some back? And the, the reality of that is nil on every front. But here's what Mary did know. She knew that her son was the son of God. And she knew that he could do something to meet this need of a couple who had a, a real problem at their celebration. His answer demonstrates that he understood this was more than just information but a request. When he says, woman, why do you involve me? 
And don't overread that statement, woman, you know, as far as this disgruntled or frustrated tone. But the second statement really helps understand, my hour has not yet come. This whole point we're talking about is that because Jesus isn't bound by time, he can be incredibly precise in his timing. We are bound by and live under the weight of timing and many, many things we can't control. Jesus had clarity about why he had come, and even this phrase that he uses, he knew when the time would come to make himself known as Messiah to the masses, which would ultimately lead him, like he just noted, to his hour, his hour. And, you know, this wouldn't be the last time that Jesus' family both misunderstood who he was, what he came for, as well as the fact of the timing that was incredibly significant. Let me show you a passage later on in the book of John. John chapter 7, verse 1. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea, south in, near Jerusalem, because the Jewish leaders were there were looking for a way to kill him. This is really significant reason to stay away. Um, but when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. Now, that sounds like a pretty noble thing, like, hey, you know, let, go ahead and, and make yourself known and, and let these disciples marvel at you. But we notice that's not their attitude at all. No one wants who wants to become a public figure does so in secret or acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. And look at this uh, commentary that John makes. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Therefore, Jesus told them, my time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. So Jesus' family not only had a significant misunderstanding of who he was, not Mary, his mother, but his siblings, and in that also had a deep misunderstanding of Jesus' timing and how important it was that he make himself known in the way that would lead up to this incredible, and remember, this hour refers to the time when he'd give his life for the sins of the world. So back to this unique relationship that um, Mary and Jesus have in this interaction. Once he says, you know, why do you involve me? My hour's not yet come. Look at her simple response. She says to the servants, do whatever he says. She has great confidence that Jesus is going to do something generous and something powerful to meet the need of uh, this newly married couple. And we get to see next how that works. Number two in your notes, since Jesus is the creator, he has authority over all of his creation. Since Jesus is the creator, he has authority over all of his creation. Read next in what we see in chapter two, verse six. Uh, nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. I love this passage. I love what unfolds in uh, how we see this. Let me give you a little bit of context 
I appreciate my friends helping me today, uh, Steve-O, in getting this uh, trash can, and then uh, Chris and Justin getting it ready for me. Um, we need to get a context. What is 20 to 30 gallons? What are we even talking about? This is a very typical trash can that's around our campus. You might have one at your home, might put your recycling in it or whatever. It holds 23 gallons, so this is kind of in that range. So I wanted you to have a visual to know what we're talking about. We're talking about six different stone jars that are about this size. So that, so try, I, I should have gotten all six, I guess, out today, but note, six of these are in somewhere nearby, Jesus is aware of them, and <clears throat> this is about the size that they would have been. We also need to see what these jars represented. These weren't just, I mean, for us, when you see a trash can, you know what to do with it, and you put your refuse in there. These stone jars were there, and, and John gives us commentary, for ceremonial cleansing that this is what the Jews, and remember we see that title again, representative of the Jewish religious system, the leaders of that system. It's what the Jews would use for ceremonial cleansing. So six of these jars are laid out. We don't know for sure if there's any water in it. We know that they're said to fill them up to the brim. So possibly were they, did they have some water? And they had been used for the guests when they attended the wedding to cleanse themselves and clean themselves up. Remember, we're talking about in the Middle East, no asphalt or paving on roads. And so people are dirty and stinky and they need a chance to maybe... Um, <clears throat> become clean before they come and sit down at the celebration. Or <clears throat> these jars were simply there and available because when there was going to be some sort of religious uh, ceremony next, they would be available for cleansing for the people who would take part. So it's important to note not only that they're there, but it's important to note what their purpose was. What were they used for generally? And then Jesus directs the servants to fill these up to the brim. Now, it's really important that we realize who is aware of what's happening. In this part of the narrative, who is aware that there are these six jars that Jesus has directed servants to fill them up with water to the brim? Jesus knows. The servants know. They've been asked. Mary is probably aware. She was probably paying attention to what Jesus was going to do. And as we're going to find out in a little bit, Jesus' disciples we're also very aware of what was going on. And that's really important. One thing that trips us up when we think about this, uh, it, and in this, in this scenario, <clears throat> once they're filled to the brim, Jesus says, draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. Interestingly, he didn't say take it to the groom, but said to the one who's kind of giving leadership over the celebration, draw some out and take it. Now, this is what trips us up and where we get lost. We know what's coming next in the narrative. And so we jump right to that part of the story, but I want you, like I said earlier today, to get into the sandals of, of those disciples. Let's specifically focus on the disciples. These men have only been with Jesus a short amount of time, and they've had interactions with him that really do cause them to believe that he is the one-of-a-kind, unique son of God, the Messiah they have been looking for. But as they see this and as they watch what's going on, you have to realize they must have been asking some very tangible questions. Because on the one hand, maybe using a trash can today seems pretty base that I would use that as an example. Well, these were jars that people put their dirty hands and faces in. So the idea of using a trash can as an example is not too far off. And so within that, uh, as that is going on, 
then what we realize, I want you to not get lost in the fact that when the, the, the liquid was drawn out, Jesus didn't just say, fill them. He said, take some and bring it to the master of the ceremonies. When that happened, you've got to believe that people like the disciples were watching, maybe even the servants, and they're thinking this in their minds. Um, Jesus, people don't drink out of those containers, it would be like us filling up water in trash cans and starting to kind of pass that out. Nobody drinks out of those. That's bad news. Um, Jesus, that's dirty water. People wash in that. Or even things like, Jesus, that's going to be really disappointing when the host goes to drink the brown water you've just had the servants draw out. They have no idea of what he is about to do and the power that he really has. And people bound by natural laws, that's the same conclusion you and I would have had. Jesus would have been drawing out dirty water, or these servants would have been, and then the master ceremony. And I, I just got to believe that as they were sitting around this ceremony, they're watching this going on, and they're kind of cringing of how is this master of ceremonies going to respond to having this dirty water in his mouth? But Jesus knew better, and Mary knew better. She knew that these were not restrictions that he had. And, and from what we even read... Again, not the vantage point the disciples had, but as we started even our December series in the book of John, you might remember this passage from John chapter 1, verse 3. Through him, talking about the word, talking about Jesus, through him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. So if Jesus was a key part of all of creation coming into being, him manipulating water into wine is no effort at all. And not even creating the world, we understand from Scripture, was effort, but this was nothing compared to who he was as creator. This is an, er an important thing to address early on in our time together in the book of John. Jesus is going to continue to do these powerful things, these supernatural actions, these miracles. And, and we need to come to grips with the fact that this is not some um, fairy tale, this is not some lore or myth that has somehow been captured in some way that just became a story larger than life. The Bible records this as a supernatural act, and, and if that is a challenge for you to accept who Jesus was, if your category of Jesus is still good moral teacher, along with Gandhi, and along with others who've come and gone, then you're going to miss and, and you're going to have a problem with what Scripture clearly communicates, that he is the one-of-a-kind, unique Son of God, the creator of the universe itself. He is able to manipulate the laws of nature because those laws report to him. That is an important thing for us moving forward in this gospel together. True to form, the master of the ceremony, he tastes this, what the disciples assume was going to be cringeworthy, but he tastes this and he says, it's not just wine, but it's the best. You've saved the best for last. And simple question, why would Jesus, the ultimate vintner, I had to look that word up, that's a winemaker, but I feel pretty proud of myself. Jesus, the ultimate vintner, why would he provide anything less than the very best of what his created order could become? It just makes sense. And by the way, there was no, uh, there's, uh, there's one more person that gets brought into this supernatural occurrence. It's not the master of ceremonies. We don't read that he ever understands what happened, but the groom. The groom would have been keenly aware that we have run out of wine, and now all of a sudden he has a master of ceremonies telling him, 
you've saved the best for last and maybe pointing to these six huge uh, containers now full of the best wine of the whole celebration. He's included in the mix as well. In your notes, I want you to take note of this. Read your Bible. Read your Bible, especially the miraculous events described in it with the same kind of wonder that those present would have had and let God keep amazing you with his goodness and with his power. It's important that we read our Bible, we come to this text, not always jumping to the end of the story, but being present in it and realizing what would I have been thinking if I would have seen this with my own eyes, if I would have been Nathaniel and I'm watching uh, a servant bring liquid out of a, the equivalent of a trash can or this, this container used for washing and then give it to the master's ceremonies and realize this is the best wine of the whole event you would have known that you have just been in the presence of something well beyond what is normative and well beyond what is human. And I want you to know this, when you read these miracles in scripture, I don't want you to confuse what the appropriate reaction would be when you respond and being, when you're completely baffled by, like for, for instance, an illusionist. Because one thing, like what we just looked at, is an act of the supernatural, and the other is simply sleight of hand. I was thinking about, I have a good friend, some of you may know him, his name is Danny Ray. He lives here in the local area. Danny uses illusions to communicate the gospel to audiences literally all over the world. And I've been present many times when Danny has done his stuff and it never ceases to amaze me, whether it be at a church setting or up at a camp like Forest Home. And Danny's just incredibly skilled. But I will be sitting in the back and he will do his thing. And even if I've seen it before, I will just say out loud, I catch myself, I can't even stop it from coming out, come on! I can't even believe what he just did. But that's because Danny's hands are a lot faster than my eyes. In this, there's no sleight of hand, but pure, miraculous, supernatural power. Look in your notes. Our response to the miracles that we encounter in Scripture shouldn't be, how did he do that, but who is that? Our response to Jesus' supernatural power shouldn't be, how did he do that, but who is that? Who is able to do such things? And that's the appropriate response that not only God wants for us, but it's the right kind of response that the disciples, as we'll see today, had in Jesus. There are so many wonderful things that we can ponder about this miraculous experience, and, and, and commentaries go all kinds of different directions, but I want to share with you one that I really feel like is central to what's just happened. And it goes back to what we've talked about earlier, these containers and what was in them. Remember these containers, and, and I'm just going to extrapolate. I think what Jesus is doing is doing more than being generous to a young couple. I think he's actually making a huge demonstration of why he came. Because remember what we said, these containers were filled with water typically to be used to cleanse the outside of a body before engaging in a religious ceremony or religious encounter. And when you wonder, I was wondering as I was reading this text, why did Jesus choose those? Was it simply because they were big and could hold a lot of wine, or was there something more to it? Why couldn't have Jesus, if he is the creator of the universe, simply create brand new clean containers? And, and, and we saw that it said fill them with water to the brim. Maybe they already had some water in them. Why did Jesus need any water at all? Why not just create new containers with new wine? 
And I think the power of this miracle speaks to the idea, could it be, could it be that Jesus is using a method that they would have been very familiar with, a method that could only provide the most of what religion can provide, and that's external cleansing. But could it be that Jesus is using this container and replacing water to wash with, with wine to drink, the very thing that he likens to being symbolic of his blood, his blood that was shed so that we could be made new, that we could be made clean from the inside out. We're receiving communion together today at the end of the service. I was supposed to remind you at the beginning. So I just want to remind you even now, maybe pause and have those elements ready. And, and we'll, it'll be a powerful thing today to receive communion based on this idea we're talking about. Could it be that Jesus is using the instrument of something that provided external cleansing to be transformed into something that typified what would cleanse us from the inside out? This wine wouldn't do that. But Jesus, later on in the upper room in John chapter 13, he will liken wine to his blood, the blood of the new covenant that was able to make us clean, cleanse from the inside out. And so I think that's a powerful idea that goes uh, with this narrative. And to me, just really, I walked away with going, this is great. And by the way, if nothing else, even if you might say that my theory is a little bit bunk, if nothing else, the disciples knew what these were before, and they were the ones who were privy to see what they were going to be after. Finally, today in our notes, it brings us to our last point. God demonstrates his power purposefully so that our faith will be strengthened for what's next. God demonstrates his power purposefully so that our faith may be strengthened for what's next. Look at the last part of our narrative today or our passage. John chapter 2, verse 11. What Jesus did, this is now John giving commentary, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs, that's going to be a really key word, was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And the, his disciples, watch, believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and there they stayed for a few days. This part of the story, to me, is really what pulls it all together and what I really want us to finish well with today. I think people, when they look at John chapter 2 and they look at this powerful miracle, they see a lot of symbolism and a lot of imagery that really comes from the elements of the miracle, that of water to wine. Or it might come from the context of the miracle, that it happened at a wedding. Or it might even come from the idea of the occasion of the miracle, that it was based on his mother, in a sense, requesting he do something. But what I think is most significant is actually the audience and the timing. And let me tell you why as we wrap it up. John steps away from narrating to now being a commentator. He's going he's gonna to fill in the gaps, and we're going to see that all throughout his gospel, and you and I are going to be incredibly aided by seeing when he gives commentary versus just telling you what just happened. The other gospel writers tend to give you a narrative, and, or they'll quote back to how this fulfilled scripture from the Old Testament, but John gives tons of commentary that really is helpful to us. And he moves away from the action, and now he, he gives what the net effect of this miracle was. And interestingly, he doesn't talk anymore about how the people at the wedding celebration were impressed or how the celebration finished wonderfully because they had enough wine. Instead, what he did is he 
tell, he fulfills what Jesus had told Nathaniel was going to happen. Remember last week we saw this in John chapter 1? Jesus said to Nathaniel, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. And look what Jesus said now happens. You will see greater things than that. Greater than me knowing where you were reading from the, the former covenant is you seeing water turned into wine. And this is just the first of those experiences. This miracle served its purpose in regarding to who the key audience was uh, for whom it was performed. It wasn't the wedding couple. It was really those of his new disciples because it reaped, it developed in them. They believed a greater confidence. They believed in him. And I want you to note the choice words that John uses. He actually doesn't refer to this uh, incredible supernatural act as a miracle, even though it is. He refers to it as a sign, as a sign. And that word's going to be huge all throughout our book. It's actually the basis of why John writes his, his gospel, his fourth uh, version of kind of what Jesus' life and ministry was about. And he tells us as much in John chapter 20. Look at specifically, Jesus performed many other signs, and I've got that word bolded, many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. So this is the very end of the Gospel of John, even on the other side of the resurrection. And he's again giving commentary. There are so many things that I could try to record of the incredible examples of Jesus' miraculous power of signs in the presence of his disciples. Now watch this, 2031, but these inference and the connection, but these signs, the ones I've included, are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So John is really clear. The reason he has written this gospel is that he wants people, he's chosen selectively to only include, you can make a case anywhere between seven and 10 miraculous signs so that when we read it, we would put our faith in the doer of them. That powerful, and we're gonna see this word sign is gonna be super important. Look at the way that Carson talks about it. He says, John prefers the simple word signs. Jesus' miracles are never simply naked displays of power, still less neat conjuring tricks to impress the masses, but signs, significant displays of power that point beyond themselves to the deeper realities that could be perceived with the eyes of faith. That's so well said. And, and the idea is, is what Carson is getting at, John is very unique or very intentional and purposeful in not only which signs he chooses, but the fact that they all have this great purpose of pointing people to the greater glory of Jesus. Now, you could use this. A working theological definition for the word miracle would be this. This would be an appropriate one. An event that involves the direct and powerful action of God transcending the ordinary laws of nature and defying common expectations of behavior. Pretty wordy, but pretty accurate related to the physical reality of what happens. But this definition, a definition that we'll often think of when we think of miracles, God does something miraculous, supernatural. We're missing, though, this piece that not only John is making much of, but I think if you go back and look from cover to cover, if you go back to the initial creation in Genesis, and if you go to the raising of the dead in the New Jerusalem in Revelation, and all the miraculous things that are embodied or made account of in our Bible, 
I think that they're all leading to something greater than simply God can work outside the laws of nature. Grudem, in his theology, a systematic theology, puts it this way, a miracle is a less common kind of God's activity in which he arouses people's awe and wonder and bears witness to himself. That's a wonderful definition. And that's so consistent with John's use of the word signs. So when we think of miracles, let's keep coming back to that. A less common kind of God's activity, so it's not outside, it's not God really straining to do something, it's all within his ability, in which he arouses people's awe and wonder and bears witness to himself. You see, that's my hope and desire, not only that John's or Jesus' disciples walked away with the purposefulness, with getting the right response to what Jesus had done, but my hope is that we would do the same. We might not have been present at the time when Jesus changed this water into wine, but we read it as truth from the authoritative, transformative word of God. And that's something that should resonate within our hearts as well, that our Savior is not bound by any kind of natural laws. So I want to finish today by just drawing your attention to a couple things. The first one is, I want you to be reminded that though Jesus' disciples, it did increase their faith. It did cause them to have greater confidence in who Jesus was. It didn't have that net effect on everyone. We don't read anywhere in the narration of John chapter 2 that the servants responded in faith to what they, they were firsthand first-hand eyewitnesses. They filled these stone jars with water, and they drew it out, and it was wine. No one would have a more front-row seat to what Jesus had done, but we don't read of any of the servants coming to Jesus and saying, tell us more. We also said the groom was brought into the circle of what happened. We don't read in the narration that the groom ever comes to Jesus and thanks him and falls at his feet in awe. It says, who can do something like this? This is important, and it's important for us in our lives to keep coming back to the idea that these powerful works of God's goodness are meant to grow, meant to develop faith in us. Look in your notes. What are the experiences? What are the experiences that have revealed God's power and goodness, miraculous or not? I don't necessarily mean that every one of us have had some... um, Uh, appointment or some ability to have seen the miraculous happen, though we believe that the miraculous is still available for God to present his glory in a world today. But whether miraculous or not, when you have witnessed and experienced the power and the goodness of God, and, and maybe not even in your own life, this wedding benefited the disciples very little. There was just simply enough to drink through the rest of the celebration, but it wasn't something that was done profoundly for them like the groom. But even though it was done for someone else, it developed it, it bolstered up their confidence. That have increased and developed your faith and your confidence in Jesus. And a contrary question is, and have you had experiences, have you been party to something that should have increased your confidence and Jesus' goodness and power, but it just went right over your head or you just missed it along the way? And that would be my hope that we could see that clearly. There's a new David Crowder song out that I just listened to this last week called Good God Almighty. I just love the use of that phrase in a really powerful way. And he has this great line in the second or the first verse. It says, I get amnesia. 
I just keep forgetting your displays of power and goodness in my life. Like we've talked about here at Trinity at the end of 2020, these stacks of rocks, reminding ourselves of the faithfulness, the goodness, and the power of God. We get amnesia. We just forget who he is and what he's done, not just as recorded in the word of God, but even around in our own lives. And that's what that's meant to do. And that's the last thing I wanted to say today was the timing The timing of this miracle, it produces in the disciples, it's that same Greek word, pisteo, faithing. It's it's the, the verbal form of the noun, faith. So it increased their faith, their confidence, their trust in who Jesus was. It had the right net effect. But the timing of when Jesus' disciples witnessed Jesus' power was going to be crucial. Because what was going to happen next in the Gospel of John in chapter 2 would require a firm belief in his deity. And I can't wait to go there with you next week, so make sure that you join us. Let me go ahead and pray. Father, we come before you today as a people who, as we see these amazing things that you do around us, we get to read your word and be um, introduced to a God who is not bound by the same types of frailties, the same types of natural laws that we are. And we're so grateful, God, to be able to see that and to be able to witness that from Scripture today. And we look at things in our own lives and we see the ways that you have demonstrated indeed your goodness and your power. And my prayer would be today, as I examine my own life, As I think back to the things that I have firsthand seen you provide, I've seen you protect, I've seen you bless, God, would that bolster my confidence in you because of what you're developing and in what you're going to bring me into next? For each one of us, God, we have our own journey in that same way that you provide these glimpses of your power, these glimpses of your goodness to prepare us that we would have confidence in you for what comes next. And that next is usually deeply challenging. So God, do that work in us. Help us have a response more like the disciples and less like the servants. Not just seeing what happened, but God, faithing in you, belief in you because of what you've done. If you're here today and you're watching with us online, and we've been talking about this incredibly powerful, good Jesus, but you've never put your faith as this word, you've never put your confidence and trust in what he's done for you at the cross, I just have great news. I'd encourage you, A, admit Admit that you're a sinner who needs a savior. Recognize the broken relationship that you have vertically with God and horizontally with others. Be believe. Believe that Jesus, this God-man that we've just seen, his power displayed that we don't have a category for, we don't know what to do with it. Believe that he lived a sinless life. Believe that he died a sacrificial death. And believe that he was raised on the third day supernaturally. See his choose. Choose not to just know information about Jesus. Choose to put your faith in him, your confidence in him, and what he's accomplished for you. And live your life following simply his example, filled with your spirit, his, I'm sorry, his spirit, so you can live out his life. You can make that decision even right now today, and I pray you wouldn't let another moment go before you do. Father, this week, help us live in light of your power and your goodness recognizing and ready for what you bring next into our lives. We love you and we pray in the great name of Jesus. Amen.